0: This is God's Word. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. This is God's word. The most powerful man in that part of the world had caved. And they were free. He he just let them walk out. They went to bed the night before as slaves and they woke up free. It wasn't the Red River that did it. It wasn't all the bugs, it wasn't the frogs, it wasn't the sores. It was something much worse. Something terrible had happened. The night before, as the Hebrew slaves went to bed, thousands of firstborn Egyptians went to bed, never to wake up. And as the whale went out across the land, the Hebrew slaves went out from Egypt. That particular part of the Exodus, the tenth plague... The death of the firstborn of the Egyptians and the saving of the firstborn of the Hebrews actually forms the background for our text today. This is why they were going to the temple in the first place. Jay uh, John Mark got to preach last week about the glory of God. It was it was great. If you missed that last week, you need to download that from the podcast. It was a great. Just explaining and really trying to get us to see the glory of God and the birth of Jesus. And now we're at the events right after that. It just kind of goes from the nativity scene to that to boom. Life goes on. And so we're still in the same place as far as God's people are concerned. It's still a dark time for God's people. The Roman occupation is the first item on everybody's news app when they look at it in the morning. I mean, that reality of Rome being there is what everybody thinks about. And the reality of Jesus Christ is what comes in and changes those things slowly and surely. And that gives us our idea for today, our theme for today. But boys and girls, maybe you want to write this down and ask your mom and dad about it at lunch. Or maybe if you're trying to think about what can we talk about together at Sunday dinner, hey, why don't you talk about the sermon? And here's what you can talk about. You can see if we we made it or not. Here's what I want you to see today. That Christmas hope comes from gospel promises. You can kind of talk about that. What does that mean? Because what we're going to see is that God's faithfulness to his promises brings his hopeful people joy. So we're going to jump right in and we're going to see these gospel promises are first seen in these faithful parents. Our text begins right there in verse 21 that Jesus is circumcised. He's given the sign of the covenant. Think about that. The first blood that Jesus sheds in his life is in obedience to God. This sign marks him as part of the covenant people of God. And he will then either confirm or deny that identification as he grows up. And then the text tells us roughly about a month later, they make the week-long trip to Jerusalem. And why would they do that? We kind of, I said the, the tenth plague is the background, but why are they doing this? Well, in the Old Testament, God commanded that after a woman gives birth, she has to be purified by making a sacrifice. Okay, that's a little weird, but we can get that. But what about Jesus? Well, a sacrifice was required for the firstborn of families, the firstborn sons of families. A sacrifice had to be made when they were born. And again, it goes back to our opening story. The ten plagues on Egypt was celebrated at Passover. God's angel of death went through the land and he passed over the houses that had the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. He passed over, did not kill them, and he killed the firstborn of every other person in the land of Egypt. He spared these people. So in ancient cultures, you know, if you save someone's life... They owed you a life debt. In a sense, you owned them. And what we see here in the working out of the Old Testament is that God claims that life debt over the firstborn of Israel. From cattle to sons. It wasn't just people. He claimed the firstborn of cattle, the firstborn of sheep. He claimed the first fruits of the crops. He claimed the firstborn of the households, the sons. And so what you would do is you would redeem your sons, you would redeem your valuable animals by presenting a ransom. Usually a lamb, in this case doves, and that blood was shed in the place of the son, the child. The life debt was paid by killing this. A life was given to ransom and redeem this life. That's what's going on here. We don't think in those terms, I know that seems kind of weird and bloody and off-putting, but a sacrifice had to be made. Mary had to be purified by blood. Jesus had to be ransomed by blood because there's guilt before a holy God from birth. And again, that sounds very harsh. It sounds very off putting. This sounds very gross and mechanical and, and bloody and just, it doesn't sound attractive at all. I, I know. But there's a glimpse here of the merciful heart of God if we have the eyes to see it as well. Luke tells us here that they gave two turtle doves. Turtle doves were an exception when the regular offering was just too much to afford. I mean, if you couldn't afford it and it was one of your animals, you just took that particular animal and said, Well, just kill this animal. I can't afford to get another animal. Just kill this one. You didn't have people doing that with their sons, right? So, they, I can't afford a full lamb. I'm sorry. So, God put a caveat in the law that, you know what, if that's if you can't afford that, you can do two two little birds to redeem your son. Two little birds. See, that tells us two things about God, if you'll think about that for a second. First, it tells us that when our God became one of us, when He invaded history, when, he, when somehow beings' life began to be as one of us, when, when eternity wrapped itself in flesh, that our Lord grew up in a poor home. They couldn't afford the regular sacrifice. Jesus knew what it was like to have more month than money. Many of you know what that's like too, right? He 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 knew what it was like to go to bed hungry. He didn't know what it was like to have one of those things. I want to pronounce it correctly: savings account. He he didn't know what that was. See, Christmas should remind us that God's not abstract. He's not unrelated to our daily struggles. He's real. And Jesus tasted the hardest parts of life. Luke shows us that Jesus, as a person, knew real struggles. He grew up in a poor home. The second thing it tells us is that God made a way to lift people up. Even in their poverty... They could be faithful to God's word. God had provided an exception to the financially challenged. A lamb's just too expensive? Use two little birds. Think about that. If God is interested in religious works, if he is a ritualistic taskmaster, if he's the big ogre in the sky, why would he provide an exception? It makes no sense. You see, God's not like a mob boss. He's not Tony Soprano. You know, if you owe him money, you better figure out how to get it. He's going to break your legs. That's not what God's like. It's always been the heart of the worshiper. And so God said, you know what? It's not the specific acts of devotion. It's not, okay, sacrifice this bull if you really love me. It's be willing to sacrifice according to what is really a sacrifice. If you're a wealthy person, it's not a sacrifice to, you know... to do two little birds, but if you're poor, it is. God provided a gracious way because it wasn't about the religious hoops to jump through. It was about the heart of the worshiper wanting to come and recognize God's holiness, recognize that they owed him a debt for this life and that they wanted to pay it to honor and worship him. God had provided a gracious way. You see, When you get that, then you get that the gospel itself is the ultimate expression of God providing a way. God requires absolute perfection. He is completely uncompromising about that. He requires complete obedience to his instructions and none of us have done it. We're born owing God a debt is what the sacrifice reminds us of. We're born guilty before him is what the cleansing of Mary reminds us of. We cannot appease him with our lives. So in his grace, he gives us a lot more than turtle doves. He gives his only unique son to be the atoning sacrifice to ransom our lives before him. We celebrate Jesus' birth this time of year. But you do realize Jesus Christ was born to die. It was not an accident. It was exactly what He came to do. Christ's sacrifice, His shed blood, purifies the people from guilt of sin. His blood ransoms us from the debt that we deserve. The death that we deserve to die. Right here at the very beginning of His earthly life, we see through the faithfulness of His parents that we can't separate the cute baby in the manger from the beaten, broken, bloody man on the cross. They're one and the same because we need them both. The hope and joy of Christmas comes only from the horror of Good Friday and the celebration of Easter Sunday. Because Christmas is nothing unless it reminds us of the gospel wherein we have salvation because Christmas hope comes from gospel promises. And these gospel promises are also seen in this text in a hopeful man. So while they're at the temple, they meet, we, we meet this man named Simeon. Luke tells us he was righteous and devout. And it means what you think it does. He was a very godly man. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's almost a church word, isn't it? What does it mean to be godly? It becomes one of those words that almost has no meaning. So I want to make sure we get this. So boys and girls especially, let's look at your translation of verses 25 and 26 here so we understand who this man is. Here's what it says. There was a man there in the temple named Simeon. He loved the Lord. And he believed God's promises. So God let him know that he would meet the Savior in his lifetime. See, boys and girls, that's what it means to be godly. It isn't being a good person. It isn't being really religious person, it means believing what God says. That's it, boys and girls, that's Simeon. Simeon believes God, and so he's waiting for something to happen. Because God told him it was going to happen. So he's waiting. He's believing. And it says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel is the phrase Luke uses. That's a weird phrase. What does that mean? The teachers of the day use that to refer to the coming of the Messiah. That he would bring refreshment. He would bring renewal. And he would bring a Rome-free existence. Which is what they really wanted. Everybody wanted that. The less Romans, the better. Please. They hoped God would do something about that. Everybody was looking for the Messiah to come in and get rid of these guys who eat a lot of pizza and talk weird. Let's get rid of those guys. See, but Simeon knew something special was coming, so he's like, no, I'm waiting, I'm here. Everybody wanted this, but he's waiting, he's here. And so Jesus' parents bring him into the temple. And right in the middle of the infant dedication of the sacrifice of the thing that's going on, Simeon grabs Jesus and he basically screams out, now I can die! which is a little weird, right? I mean, if that happens at our next infant baptisms, someone's probably going to tackle him before he gets up here. I mean, that's just, that's just not, you don't do those sort of things. He's, he's, he's super excited. See, boys and girls, Simeon here, he, it's almost like it's Christmas morning for him. Think of how excited you are on Christmas morning. He's been waiting to open presents, and you've been waiting to open presents, and now it's here, you're so excited. So he, Simeon basically shouts out in joy, God has been faithful, salvation is here. I can rest from watching and waiting. I'm done. Oh, there's a great truth there. Simeon is living in the joy of Christ's Redemption. Right then, right there. You and I, everyone around him, we're preoccupied with watching over our lives, our stuff, right? We care about our identity or our value as a person to make sure I look good and my status and I want to make sure I'm presenting something well. We're so concerned with ourselves, we have no peace. Simeon shows us that an overwhelming vision of what God promises in Jesus Christ Can set us free. It relieves us of the stress of watching over our own lives. We can say redemption has come. I'm relieved from watching over my life. You see if we really get the gospel. If we really get that this holy creator God has reconciled sinners like us to him. Made us family through Jesus Christ. If we really get that we too can step back and say, I don't have to watch over my life anymore. I don't have to live trying to impress people. I don't have to do any of those things. The gospel sets us free from that. And we can live in joyfulness in the reality of the gospel. That's very religious talk. That's very churchy. That sounds very good. And we do the Presbyterian grunt. Right? What does that really look like? Everybody you know, and I mean everybody... Okay, you should never always use the words never and always everybody, right? We're doing that. Everybody you know is time poor, money poor, or friend poor, or a combination of them. There's no one in your life who's not struggling with one of those poverties. The gospel answers all of those. The gospel answers friendship, poverty. Why? Because it brings you into a community of fellow believers, fellow strugglers. No longer saying, okay, if I do good and be good, God will love me. So I, I, I have to do better than you, which means I have to judge you and we can't be friends. Or you can say, Jesus has done good and made me good. I don't have to compete with anybody. We're fellow strugglers and sinners. You can be friends. Money poor. You can help you get your priorities right. Where you don't have to, I don't know, maybe this time of year buy presents for people you don't really like because of the social pressure and you just want to deal with it so and it's money you don't really have and so but you're going to do it anyway and yeah let's not go there right so you can get rid of that stuff if you're if you're secure in christ you know what i'm just this is not good stewardship i'm sorry i'm not going to give you a present just out of obligation and then what about being time poor can the gospel help you with being time poor Do you do stuff in your life that you really don't want to do to impress people you really don't like because it's better for you, you think, or it'd be easier? Do you see how if you're rooted and grounded in the security that Christ offers you, say, my identity is based on the fact that Christ has died for me. I'm an adopted child of God. He approves me. And so it doesn't matter if you approve me. I'm called to do this. I'm called to do this. And you know what? I'm not going to be available during this time. This is my family time, and if that makes you mad, that makes you mad. I'm sorry. I live for him and not for you. Do you see how that gives you the power to do that, all of a sudden you have more free time? Those are hard to do if you're not rooted and grounded in that reality because, you know, if you're not, I want to be available because people may not like me. Do you see how the gospel speaks into those poverties? That's what Simeon is saying. Simeon is saying, I have been watching over my life. I've been watching, and now I'm free, and you can be free too if you get what this child means. That's Christmas. That's why you can have joy at Christmas because the gospel sets you free from those things. Now, in case you think, well, yeah, but Simeon is back in the biblical times. It was easier for him because, you know, he was old and ancient people were dumber than we are. They just, it was harder, right? He's looking at a baby. He knows nothing of the life of Jesus Christ. He never heard Jesus teach anything. He heard Jesus go, yeah, 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 right? That's it. He didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't hear the cool stuff, and you know, most of John. He, has, he knows nothing of the Passion Week. He knows nothing of the death of Jesus Christ. He knows nothing of that amazing thing that happened on Easter Sunday morning. And he knows nothing of all those cool things that happened in the book of Acts. He didn't know any of that. He hears God say, you're going to meet the Messiah. He meets the Messiah and says, done. God's got it from here on out. And it gives him joy and peace just to let go of his life like that. Don't you want to have that kind of joy and peace? You see how, if you get an overwhelming picture of what God has done in the gospel, you can just let it go and have peace. Because God's got this. You don't have to watch over your life anymore. Oh, it's such an awesome thing. But then I I, got to be candid with you. I sort of wish Simeon would stop talking at this point because he keeps talking. He's doing all this cool stuff about God's fulfilled promises, about the peaceful release of God's grace. And he has to go and he just he totally ruins the ride by talking about all that bad stuff. I mean, look with me, verse 34 and 35. Who wants to hear this? And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, Jesus Christ is the great divide of history. And of people. Encountering Jesus, he tells us, reveals our very heart. This is why people are rarely neutral about Jesus. If you actually have conversations with people about Jesus, you rarely get neutrality. You you, you get something else because when you get right down to it, People are either longing for God or they're longing to be God. Now, don't miss this. This is, this is important. So I want to make sure we all understand this. So let's all look together at the kids' translation of verses 34 and 35 to really get what Simeon's saying to Mary. He said, <clears throat> said, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, this child is going to change everything. He will bless and curse and many will not like him you also will suffer for him. You see, we talk about God's promises in the gospel. How the gospel shows God's mercy and God's love, but don't forget the gospel will offend people. It is offensive. And that is like the main sin in our culture. You're not supposed to do today, right? Don't offend people. And so what do we do? We get scared and and we want to be good Americans, and we want to get along with people, and so we're polite, and we just try to keep religion out of it, right? We don't don't want to be that religious guy. We don't want to be him. And that social pressure is the reason most of us don't talk to our neighbors about the gospel, isn't it? Well, I might offend them. Isn't it great to know that Simeon told us at the very beginning, guess what, Jesus, you're going to be the most offensive person in history. What does that make his followers? You know, I've used this before, but this is a really salient way to think about this. And there's a magic act out there, it's really good called Penn and Teller. I don't know if you've seen them or not. They do really neat magic acts. And one guy is doing most of the magic and he doesn't say anything. That's teller. Penn is the guy who does all the talking. Right? So he 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 has um been in several movies and TV shows. And if you don't know, Penn Gillette is his full name, and he is an absolutely foul-mouthed, profane, confrontational atheist. And he has a blog, it's very popular, he has a video blog where he actually talks to the camera. And about three or four, no, five years ago at this point, he tells the story on his blog of a stranger who didn't know he was famous, just ran into each other on a subway, I think he said, who who shared the gospel with him. And here's what this foul-mouthed, confrontational atheist says on his video blog about it. He says, and this is long, so stick with me, because, you know, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this, the message of salvation, is more important than that. By the way, he prefaces this quote by saying, I going to be clear, there is no God. And he ends it by saying, and I'm not convinced, but right there in the middle. that's pretty sobering, isn't it? How many of us have had the opportunity to testify to Christ, to share the love of Christ, but because of social pressure to be nice or to not be offensive or not be that religious person, we haven't. How many of us find it easier to talk about things in the church we don't like than to talk about Jesus Christ? Let me go ahead and be really popular. How many of our friends and neighbors have a really good idea of what is going wrong at Trinity but have no idea who Jesus is? Let the words of this atheist sink into your soul. Hear again Simeon's words. The gospel will be opposed It will offend. It will cause people to fall. We will suffer for it. But it is the only thing that will keep our friends and neighbors from an eternity in hell for their sin before a holy God. Here's a little thought experiment. Start thinking of people you know. Just let their faces come before you in your mind right now. And here's the question to ask yourself. Where will they be in a hundred years? If we really believe this stuff, if this is not just tradition we come to out of habit, if this is actually what we believe, they're going to be somewhere amazingly, incredibly fulfilling and awesome in a hundred years, or they are going to be somewhere amazingly, incredibly, unspeakably horrifying in a hundred years. but we don't want to offend them. Let's not talk about that. What do you think of the new Gamecocks, coach? Do we really believe the gospel? Are we personally desperate, like Simeon is, like we should be for God's grace to be in our lives? And having received that grace, where is our hope and our joy in telling the wonderful story of our Lord? See, Christmas hope comes from gospel promises. I hope that you have that gospel hope. And you know what's so cool is here in the South especially, this is like the easiest four days in the world, if you're feeling conviction right now, to take care of this. Because invite people to a Christmas Eve service. Who's going to say no to that? And I'll share the gospel with them for you. Deal? Okay? So you pack the place. I'll share the gospel. And it would be great. And this week, people aren't going to say no to you. Go try to offend somebody this week. Try to talk to them about Jesus. If that's too scary, if if this is too weird, invite them to a Christmas Eve service. Why not? Gospel, hope, is the root and the anchor of Christmas hope. Let's really wish people a Merry Christmas. So we saw the parents, we saw Simeon, now our text ends with this thankful woman here. Luke introduces us to a woman named Anna, says she's a prophetess. This is a lady who spoke, who God spoke to and sometimes through, says she's married at a young age, she had a husband for seven years, and now she has been a widow all the way to age 84. That is a long time. And in that culture, widows were burdens. Widows were seen almost as, it's, if you've ever, ever been around these kind of traditional cultures, they're still around today. A, a long-time widow was almost seen by other women as predatory on their husbands. She would, she would be pushed away. She would be isolated. She would be excluded for most of her life. And yet in that difficulty, in that hardship, Luke is so clear, she was a worshiper constantly in the temple, communing with God, wanting to be with her God, even though her life had not worked out according to her plans at all. She was not having her best life then. And she's there when Simeon prophesies. She believes what Simeon says, and she starts to give thanks to God, and then she starts telling others about God's promises of grace, just because some what old guys said about a baby. See, in the midst of her disappointment, in the midst of her lifelong trial, she's thankful, she's joyful, and that joy opens up the opportunity for her to share the grace of God with those around her. I love that. You know why? Because life's not easy, y'all, right? We fake it a lot, but man, it's hard out there. Most people we know don't walk around with joy, And when Christians do, people want to know what's up. They really do. Because real hope, real joy messes an unbelieving world up. It's great. I think I've used this story before too, but I remember when I I worked in corporate America for about three years and I did it post-seminary, and Which is really difficult because, that's, you know, I didn't go to seminary and get all that student loan stuff or, and go through all those years of education. I didn't, I didn't do that to work in corporate America in a cubicle not selling insurance. So I remember I was using the stairs all the time because, you know, I don't know how y'all handle it, those of you who work in a cubicle. But I somehow, you know how a goldfish will fit the size of its container? fitting a cubicle I just started to expand. Anyway, so I was trying to use the stairs more than the elevator and I remember I always run into the VP of our department on the stairs and my mentor at the time, he knew I was not happy so he was always trying to encourage me, make the choice to be positive. Make the choice to be positive, be happy. Be happy. This is the guy, I remember he told me one time he goes, "Look, Sean, any day you wake up and there's not a chalk outline around you, that's a good day." I'm like, okay. You know, this is the guy, I think I've told the story before, that I was complaining one time, and he happened to have a straw in his pocket, and he goes, are you done? I said, yeah, man. And he took it out and goes, here's a straw. Jesus died for you. Suck it up. So I love this guy. So He told me, always be positive. So I was like, okay. So I'd always see the VP of my department. She'd always ask, how you doing today, Sean? I'm like, I'm doing great. How are you, Jackie? And after like three weeks, she stopped. She goes, you're the only person who ever answers that question happy. Everybody else was like, well, well, And right there, and she was, why do you do that? And so right there, I I don't remember what I said. I I hope it was good. I don't know. It was like, I had one sentence opportunity. And I just remember said, I remember something about Jesus and death and I'm not my own. I get to be happy. And, and she was like, oh, cool. And moved on. I don't know how that worked, how the Holy Spirit used that, but I got to share the gospel simply from saying, great, even though I hate it every day. I hated corporate America. I hated working in a cubicle. Any day you met me was like the worst day of my life. I hated it but I'm going to be positive, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be joyful. And she asked, how do you do that? Imagine what we can do for those of us who have been so blessed that we actually are happy in in our life. See, Anna shows us that here. Being thankful for God's grace, even when her life is not perfect, is a powerful evangelistic tool. See, just like in our day, people in her day were starved for hope. He tells us these people were looking for the redemption of Israel. They were looking for the liberation of of Jerusalem from Roman occupation. But Anna knows better. She's looking at this like, you know what, you're looking to the wrong problem. They needed freedom from something bigger than Rome. They were slaves to sin and slaves to death. They sensed they needed something. They knew something's not right, but they didn't know what it was. They just wanted a better life. Which is exactly what the people around us are like, too. They, they, there's something wrong. They know existentially things just don't fit. I don't, I'm never happy. And why doesn't the world work? And it, it's just they don't know. They're slaves to sin. They're completely alienated from their creator. And so life does not feel right. But they don't get that. They just think if only I had more of this, I'd be happy. Or less of this, I'd be happy we can come and speak into that because God wants to give us more joy than we can imagine. But we're so focused on our difficulties and trials that we miss what we ultimately need. What can ultimately slake our thirst is not more stuff. or It's to be reconnected with our Creator God. Oh, Christians, that's how the world around us thinks. They're thirsty, they're hungry, but they don't know what for. We have the answer to that desire. Do we have the joy needed to share it? So in case you haven't figured it out yet, my good church-attending Christians, you know, Simeon and Anna are us. They have the sort of faith that really we should ascribe to. Aspire to, not ascribe. There we go, aspire to. They didn't see any miracles. Remember, they're looking at a baby. They didn't see the angels at His birth. They didn't see Christ's death and resurrection just like... Us. They simply had what? An inner call from the Holy Spirit, like we have in His Word, and they believed it and obeyed it. And that obedience led to an encounter with Christ. And then upon encountering Jesus, they proclaimed the good news of Jesus. Who do you see in Jesus? What is Christmas about for you as a Christian? I mean, the whole point... Is what? We give gifts because of the gift of Jesus. God keeps His promises and so in the fullness of time He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of that law. And because of that incredible gift, we give gifts. See, and when we get that fact that we're saved by grace, not by our religious works, but because of God's faithfulness to His work in Christ's, it establishes our joy. It makes us a hopeful people. And then like the hopeful people in this text, it's our joy to proclaim them to anyone who will listen. So I will just end with this challenge. What are we helping our friends and neighbors see this Christmas? Let's pray together. Oh, Father God.